In this episode, I'm once again joined by Stephen Snyder, meditation teacher, author, and the first non-monastic Western man to master the virtuoso-level shamatha meditation system of Pa Ork Seador. In this interview, we discuss Stephen's latest book, Demystifying Awakening, a Buddhist path of realization, empowerment, and freedom. Stephen gives detailed comparisons between the maps of Theravadan and Zen Buddhism, explains the difference between Kensho and Satori, and reveals why it's so easy to stall after an initial awakening experience. Stephen also shares techniques to open the wisdom eye, loosen allegiance to the body, and transcend the superego, and reveals how he assesses others' spiritual experiences, and how an individual can self-assess their own level of awakening. So without further ado, Stephen Snyder. Stephen Snyder, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Nice to be here again with you. I'm very delighted to be speaking with you again, and we're here to discuss your new book, Demystifying Awakening. Yes. I think we remarked in our last interview, uh, listeners will no doubt remember that I've interviewed Stephen two, three times now, and I'll include links to all of those interviews below. In the last interview, we were discussing your book about the Brahma Viharas, the Buddha's heart. Now you have another book coming out, and Rumor has it you have another book coming out to do with Zen and koans, a very beautiful commentary on, on Zen koans. So, you know, well, first of all, what's going on? What's behind this outpouring of, of, <laughs> of uh, really fantastic books? And actually also, could you situate us? Because there is something of a progression, or at least the books somewhat linked together, Buddha's hearts referred to in Demystifying Awakening in, 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 several, right. in several places. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about What's behind this tremendous output? Well, I think I'll first start by saying a lot of this is sort of my own personal journey in the sense that I've been, I started practicing in the Zen tradition in 1976. And then after about 20 some years, began fairly intensely practicing in the Theravadan tradition. And so uh, I'm one of those that's sort of a hybrid between the two. And I still do practice in the Zen tradition, as well as do practices from Theravada Buddhism. So I think that my own perspective is heavily influenced by both those traditions. I like a lot the simplicity and the directness of the Zen practice path. And yet I really like a lot of the meditations from the Theravadan path. They're very specific. They're very fleshed out. Um, so there's something about them. And I, I think in my own journey, I began to see relationships between these practices that I hadn't seen before. And so I, with all these things, I begin uh, gently experimenting with students to see what sort of lands and what doesn't land, sort of how I can present things that will be helpful. And so really, with the Buddha's heart, that became an important book in that I think for all of us, particularly in the West, I think we're really in need of having authentic heart contact. And I think there's a lot to be gained from that. The way I teach them is as qualities of true nature. So as unconditioned, meaning they're not born, they don't die, they're ever present. And so, and, and the importance of that to me is that then we don't need to do anything to deserve them, meaning we don't need to be the good boy or girl, we don't need to go through the laundry list of things we've done badly or, or the mistakes we've made in our life to see if we are worthy. So it really makes a big difference having that contact in that way. 
And then what that's led to is because we're getting more in touch with true nature, then that sort of dovetails into uh, the potentiality of awakening, of awakening to our true nature as our true identity. So that's sort of where it evolved out of into the awakening book. And also just from my own reading, I at one point had a huge library of Buddhist books and lots and lots of Zen books, but almost none of them actually talked about the practicalities of awakening. What does it actually mean? And is there, are there different standards and all this? So I decided to start just synthesizing that down again from my own experience and from teaching. How, do, how does this go together in a way that's useful and also that's optimistic, that says this is real, it is possible in this lifetime, because a lot of the, even the Western Buddhists think about it in terms of lifetimes of practice, which I don't think is a bad perspective, but I think it's also helpful if we hold it that all these potentialities for realizing the deepest truths are here right now. We can access them or they're potentially here. I mean, they are here. We can potentially access them. Yeah, that's very interesting indeed. And I'd like to get into the themes of Demystifying Awakening. It's actually really quite a remarkable book. There are many syntheses, uh, syntheses that go, go on in that book. Uh, some very fascinating comparisons between Zen and Theravada, both their maps as well as their uh, orientations in terms, in terms of their goals and so on. Uh, that's an obvious synthesis, uh, but there are several others also, and I'd like to um, dive into them with you. But first of all, something you've you've said there. What do you think is the potential for awakening? Should we say it like that? Um, in the in the general or interested population, among your students, perhaps, or just among people in general. You're mentioning there. There are some views that say, well, never really, uh, mm -hmm. in some far off lifetime. Other people have a uh, rather, uh, one could argue, more trivial standard of awakening, maybe. Uh, so along that whole spectrum of very, very low standards for awakening or some sort of experience or another uh, to uh, the extreme high-end standards, what do you, where do you place the probability or potentiality of, of individuals to experience these states and attainments? Well, I, I think that many dedicated practitioners meaning people who meditate regularly and who um, attend retreats even sporadically. I think people are as a group, those people as a group are uh, seeing true nature. They're seeing qualities of true nature for themselves. So they are in fact touching into that. But to me, the big dividing line is those moments are really important to see what I, what, and I use the Zen term Kensho for those, when we're seeing, we're having a flash of true nature, where the, the sense of self is suspended in what I call absence of self, and we're seeing true nature. The, the distinction is with the Kensho experiences, I'm using the term, is a shorter duration experience, and, and one doesn't actually see true nature as their identity. They see true nature, they see it's here, but it's not yet, that's me, or I'm that. That, has, that realization hasn't landed yet. And that's really the realization that I think is the important one because it with the, and I call that the Satori experience where 51% or more of consciousness identifies as true nature. And once that happens, then that becomes the foundation rather than the personality and the personal structuring. 
So that becomes, and the work's not done there. I don't want to say, you know, suggest that, but that becomes an important perspective that I am true nature. There's no, no doubt about that, but I still have behavior that doesn't comport with that perspective. So I'm still, I'm still doing dumb human things. And, you know, I'm, I'm being sloppy in life, basically. And so that's where it gives us our material. I, I recommend my students keep a journal and just note down sort of the big events they have that say, wow, you know, what happened there? That was really not how I wanted to respond or react. And then later one can investigate that and really trace the history of it and hopefully liberate it in, in some measure. And perhaps this is not a very good question to ask, so feel free to say so if that's the case, please. But what do you think, in, in, in say your students or friends you know and in the communities you've been a part of as a teacher or as, as a member of a community, what, what kind of percentage of people do you think are getting, getting this Kensho experience? And how many are reaching that 51% or more mark of Satori? Yeah, I, I think uh, I would say a lot of people in working with students, I have a lot of folks that will relay experiences to me uh, or talk about experiences in a way that's clear they've had uh, some big experience. And I think it's also important for all of us to confirm our realizations with a teacher who has had the realization so we can see is this a legitimate experience or am I somehow fooling myself and I, you know I really need to know so that I can either land on it I can you know use that as my foundation or realize there's still more to be done in terms of creating the foundation and I'd say for the Satori experience it's a lot smaller um, I would say there's a lot of teachers that have had first awakenings and you know, just my casual contact with teachers. I went to one teacher's conference, but it seems to me that that's fairly predominant. Uh, whether they've had little or sort of big experiences, I can't really say without knowing the better. Um, but I, I do think it's it's not just teachers that have that. There are students that clearly have it. I talked with someone about a week ago who had had an, a spontaneous awakening experience, and and they're a Theravadan practitioner, so they were doing doing things that were a little different than they normally did. They weren't just doing Vipassana or mindfulness, they were doing some other practices. And this thing unfolded for them, this experience. That's very interesting. And we're not yet at the book, but we're already edging into certain themes. And we will get to the, the book because there are some very interesting points there that I'd love to dive into. But what you're saying is also very interesting. Do you think it's possible to stop after Kensho? and begin teaching, let's say, as you mentioned, uh, after Kensho and never really go any further or never have the urge to go further? Or is that short duration glimpse of Kensho uh, tend to draw one towards at least the possibility of Satori? Is it possible, in other words, to languish between Kensho and Satori? I, I suspect it is. I, I think there are teachers who have had Kensho experiences that are teaching. Um, and the main difference I'd say between those teachers, those that have had the Kensho and the Satori in whatever tradition they're in, I'm not limiting this to any tradition, but there's, there's a difference in terms of functioning of personality and personal material is 
for the Kensho experience, the belief in the self has been challenged in that experience. So it's not fully believed, but it's not the same as Satori where that the grounding is no longer in the personality. It's in, you know, the transcendent, it's in the awakening, the ever-present unconditioned qualities of the absolute, as we call them in Buddhism. So, so there is a big difference. And the, the, one of the problems is that the teachers that have had either no awakening experience or small awakening experience is there's still a lot more risk of them misbehaving with students because they're still they still have an uh, an ego functioning in it and they still have projections in the sense that they need to be seen in a certain way they need to be elevated in a certain way and that creates problems in the communities that the, the students are then uh, managing the teacher's expectation of how they want to be mirrored rather than the teacher being more of a you know more of a blankness where there isn't necessarily the personality material running all the time um, so i'm not sure if i was clear about that but i think there there are distinctions and i'm not saying someone couldn't be a good teacher without having an awakening they absolutely could be really good at supporting meditation and helping people with the integration in their lives but they're, they're also not the lighthouse they're not the beacon of the absolute and that really is part of what students need is they need to have that transmission that occurs where it's it's resonant you know there's like a musical note and it's resonant in their system and and that's where it really makes a difference if the teacher has had the, the satori experience if someone was fairly sure that they'd had a profound experience in the awakening category perhaps not having thought of it in the way we're now discussing it, uh, that can show Satori, etc. I think it's a very helpful distinction. And they wanted to check in their own practice, in their own experience, for example, are there any tests that one could self-administer or any uh, uh, directions in one's experience to look to check or just disambiguate am i in the kensho camp or am i in the satori camp or am i somewhere in between mm -hmm. um, well the the one of the tests that we can use and self-administer is simply asking ourselves who am i and see what the response is i mean genuinely turn within and self-reference what's there and if it's the me, meaning all the worldly stuff, all my history, my memories, my experiences, if that's all that I'm finding, then I'm fairly landed in the personality structuring material. And if I'm finding that there's a vastness, spaciousness, and particularly absence of self, if, if I'm having trouble locating a self, then that's gonna be more indicative of a deeper experience. That's very helpful. And you, you point out in the book that there's a tradition in Zen of confirming one's uh, spiritual experiences or religious attainments with a senior teacher. Right. Um, and after this, I think perhaps we'll pivot into uh, into the book more 
more specifically. I'm really curious. Let's let's say one of your students or or, or maybe someone who's just calling you maybe for the first time on a mentoring call uh, believes they've had their first awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe on a retreat, like I said, or maybe they're calling you for, on Zoom or something. Um, can you walk us through the process of how you'd handle such a situation? You you have begun two teachers to confirm your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you assess and confirm when someone comes to you with such an experience? And if you believe that they have, or perhaps even if you believe they haven't, what do you tell them? Mm-hmm. Well, it's very individualistic. So it's going to depend how they present and what their experience is. And so based on what they're con- communicating, that's what I would be looking for. I mean, you're looking primarily for direct experience. So something that has happened rather than an understanding or some kind of simplification, something complex now becomes simple to understand. Um, we're looking for something more than that, where it's it really changes, like I said, changes who you are. Uh, one of the other indicators to me is whether the wisdom eye, what's called the Dharma eye in Zen, is open. Because in Theravada Buddhism, that's one of the expectations, particularly in the, the jhana practice, that the wisdom eye, if the wisdom eye opens, then one can develop the masteries in jhana, where you can see into the prior mind moment and you can confirm what's happening in your own experience. Can you say a little more about this, uh, the wisdom eye and how one might experience or test that? Well, for example, on the, on the deep concentration retreats that I teach, one of the common physical phenomenon people have is they have a kind of pressure in the middle of their forehead, um, something that feels like they're maybe getting a headache uh, or there's a tension. And for the most part, I mean, it could be one of the things we check for is, is there some striving going on? So are you really wanting to get to a goal in the way that we might in terms of our our work and our life in the world we get from a to b there's a a goal a conclusion and so if they're too attached to the goal to the experiential goal that can create headaches that can create head tension but this is not so much head tension it's very uh, very specific very localized to the forehead and so people what's happening is the wisdom eye like an eye is blinking it's beginning to open. And that's how the progression of that practice can develop more easily if the wisdom eye is open. And if someone's experiencing that, they, they're experiencing this pressure in the, in the forehead, the wisdom eye is blinking and beginning to open. Mm-hmm. What, what's likely to happen next? Just stay with the practice you're doing and don't concern yourself with the wisdom eye. Let it do what it's going to do. But, but it's, you know, when it opens, it, it also is opening up to a more established relationship with our intuition. So intuitive understanding becomes more readily available. And with the, the wisdom eye or the Dharma eye, it's one of the things teachers use to also see where people are. So like on retreat, when I'm in the meditation hall, I sit most of the meditations with the groups and I, every sitting at one point, I look around the group, the room, and I'm getting kind of a hit on each person. 
sort of where it feels like they are, what's happening. And then I watch them also when they're walking around or eating, just how are they moving? And you can get to where it's possible to tell in some instances if it's personality driven or whether it's not. So maybe we would call it absence of self-driven. There's just a different way of behaving, a different way of functioning when it's coming from me rather than it's coming from the mystery. Mm. Very interesting. Well, let me say one last point about that. And that is there also with all of these realizations uh, in whatever tradition, there's also an energetic feel. There's like an energy to the experience. And this is why a lot of teachers don't confirm unless somebody is fresh in the experience, because you can feel the energy. It's in the field, uh, the combined field. And like for me, when I teach some things um, I know well, there's a certain energetic vibration when someone attains that experience. So I can feel like I could feel that musical note. I can feel the, the resonance of their energy uh, when they're communicating or they're just simply sitting with me. I can feel it too. Hmm. Now, not all as I would say, but it's possible. If they've attained, for example, a particular jhana or mm -hmm. a particular yeah, insight, amazing. Or, or an awakening um, that would also feel have its own feel to it as well. Are there near enemies or close uh, facsimiles of, say, Kensho and Satori um, that one might uh, one might encounter in others, or perhaps even in oneself, or perhaps even in one's teachers? <laughs> yes, we we won't go too far down that road. <laughs> but it really. Um, it really, the big tension that there is, is really between the direct experience and the conceptual understanding. Because we have a big experience in, again, whatever tradition, let's say in awakening, since that's our focus. Well, after the awakening subsides, so the Kensho are, are generally very short term. So they happen quickly, matter of minutes generally or less, and they're over. So the like the fumes of the experience are still there for a while. But after a while, we begin to remember and we sort of create the picture of what it was like. Well, I, I, look, I felt this way, my perspective was this, my inner state was this. And so what we all do and is we all go and we try to recreate those, the elements of that recipe, because we want to recreate the experience. And one of the hardest lessons I had to learn when I was in the Zen tradition was when you have a Kensho experience, it doesn't duplicate. So the next Kensho experience is not going to be identical to the prior one. But we look for it, we think it is. So I think the conceptualizing is really the biggest problem that people have. And I, I don't mean a big problem, but I think it's just a human default to try to conceptualize. Then we make it ours and we try to weave it into who we are, that I've had this experience. And that's another indicator, too, is if somebody sees themselves as special, that's also a sign that the personality has co-opted the experience and incorporated into me. So now I'm this person, I have these attributes, and I've had this Kensho experience.
very interesting indeed. Your book is called Demystifying Awakening, and it certainly it certainly does that. Very practical, very precise, and also very straightforward. And there are interestingly enough exercises for almost every point, meditative exercises for almost every point, as well as what I suppose we could call pith instructions, uh, sort of uh, reflections on each point. Uh, for example, if you're doing if you're at this stage, you might encounter these resistances. Or here's mm -hmm. here's something that uh, uh, here's an unexpected consequence of glimpses of no self or might feel somewhat uh, dislocated from a sense of self and that can be distracting uh, uh, disturbing and one may one may seek to busy oneself with activities to get away from that and that's all right for a period of time and you're going to have se several of those experiences to sort of warm you up for a more abiding awakening experience this sort of interesting details I think are quite unusual and to, perhaps I'll give a sample of the sort of language I'm talking about. You write about awakening. Awakening is seeing clearly through the lens of who we take ourselves to be in quiet recognition of our abiding true nature. True nature is absence of a separate self coupled with a direct knowing of the unbreakable connection, oneness of all life, including each of us as our true nature. Awakening includes seeing the many wholesome qualities of our true identity our true nature. These inherent qualities include unconditioned love, innate goodness, profound stillness of peace, complete welcoming acceptance, mutual joy, deep compassion, as well as wholesome strength, unconditioned support, and pristine clarity, to name just a few. And then you go on to uh, offer a list here. From my perspective, there are three components to an experience of awakening. Number one, a deep experience of absence of self. Number two, a life-altering experience of seeing one's true nature. Number three, a thorough unity experience where all is one or everything is a fabric of oneness. Then one more uh, line here. The depth of an awakening experience is marked by how long the awakening experience lasts, i.e. minutes versus weeks, and how thoroughly the conviction in the separate me is dislodged, short-term as well as long-term. So you're giving here a, a clear definition of awakening as, as well as reflecting on its different levels and grades. I'm wondering, why is awakening so misty? You seem to be able here to describe it quite clearly. Why, is, why does awakening need mystifying? Why is there su such confusion about this term and this whole area? Well, the main reason is because at some point early on, the teachers really, and again, this is my perspective, uh, this isn't necessarily historically <laughs> confirmed, but I, I think the teachers, you know, because really Buddhism came from India, Nepal to China, it was, was one of the movements of uh, Buddhism. And uh, in my view, they were taking primarily the jhana practice from India, Nepal to China, because that was the foundation for Buddhism, it was the foundation for the yogic practices for thousands of years before the Buddha. And what they saw is what those of us that teach it today see is there's a lot of striving. People want to get it, they want to get the brass ring, they want to get the goodie. And so there's a lot of focus on that. And it really creates a lot of suffering, both for the teachers and for the students when they don't actually get the brass ring or they come close but can't it doesn't quite land and so i think to really have it be easier for everyone they began to pull back on 
what the experience was like, um, a variety of, of qualities of the, the goal, let's say. And the idea was if there was no goal, that people would naturally progress and would have these at least non-dual experiences, if not awakening experiences. But the problem when you keep, when you hold back is that and you have new teachers and and the younger teachers didn't do the initial holding back they may not know that there's more to be revealed or there's more the teachers know either conceptually or experientially and so that gets lost and then you end up with practices where the teachers don't actually know the progression of the practice and this to me is where i feel like the dovetail between the theravadan practices as the buddha originated a lot of those or adapted them really combined with the zen approach really makes a, a really wonderful practice territory where you have the awakening included so you have some of that progression and you, you mentioned in the book i also talk about the bodhisattva ideal the ideal that we will return in lifetimes to be of assistance to others crossing over into awakening until everyone is all beings are awake we don't we don't cease the rebirth and the theravadan model the arahant is absolutely getting off the wheel of existence they're getting fully realized in the theravadan model and that's the last lifetime so to me there's something about not returning that i personally i i'm uncomfortable with i think that's part of our obligation both to ourselves, but to the unconditioned, to the absolute, is to return and to make these teachings as accessible as we can without diluting or lowering the bar. We have to keep, you know, keep that pristine. But I think the more people know about it, the less they're gonna invent for themselves. That's very interesting. And when you talk about returning, do you mean in the sense of reincarnation? Well, in Buddhism, we talk about it as rebirth. So it's, it's, and the difference being that reincarnation suggests there's an abiding soul or entity that goes from lifetime to lifetime. And really, it's, it's that, uh, you know, consciousness will return back to the absolute, to the unmanifest side of the absolute. And then uh, when it's ripe, will come into manifestation again. And it seems that when there's been some level of liberation or awakening, that awakening stays as part of that particular section of consciousness. And so when people are reborn who have had the consciousness has been awake at some point, it seems like it's a quicker journey to return to the practices and the realizations. And then there's on to new material. There's always more to be done. I'm curious what you think of practices in, say, the Tibetan tradition. Uh, where it's alleged practitioners can, through various yogic means, um, direct, even more specifically, it seems, than what you're saying, their rebirth, mm -hmm. and perhaps retaining um, other qualities uh, than, than simply a, a sort of latent potential for awakening that carries over. I'm thinking of qualities such as um, understanding of certain topics mm -hmm. or uh, certain proclivities, taking to certain teachings, or taking even to certain skills like memorization of uh, of texts or uh, et cetera, et cetera, these sorts of things. 
I'm curious, what do you think? What do you think of of that? Uh, those ideas? Yeah, I, I suspect they're probably accurate. I, I can feature that that there would be a sophistication around it. Uh, in terms of of that and, and I'm I'm being a little bit a little bit vague about this topic just because it is part of the mystery of how it all happens exactly and but I know that the at least the the lamas and the tulkus and ripishes that their consciousness is packaged in a particular way if they have um, if they don't have an instant death meaning they have a lingering illness for for example or or age then they can go through some processes so they can as I say, sort of package the consciousness so it's a lot more intact. Very interesting. Well, I'd like to return a little later to to some of the uh, interactions between the Zen and the Theravada as you present them in the book. A couple of points. You talk about superego and trauma, and you write, working with the superego is critical for a spiritual practice to develop and for our path to true reality to open. It is an ongoing engagement that we must become skillful with to awaken to our true nature. And you go on to say, the severe trauma sufferer needs to meet the superego and its painfully negative judgmental statements with love. In doing so, we soften the superego's anger and aggression while potentially opening to a reintegration of the superego into our consciousness. I think this is a very interesting section of the book. Could you talk a bit about why it's important to work with the superego, how one does that, and also why people with severe trauma might want to approach that differently? Right. Uh, well, working with the superego is important because for most of us, the inner critic or superego is that voice that's critical. We make a mistake and that voice says, that's the stupidest thing you've ever done. I can't believe how dumb you are. You know, it has some really negative, really awful ways of communicating. And the, the psychologists believe that this gets incorporated when we're between two and five, we internalize a parent or caregiver. And initially it's very helpful. Don't, don't play in the street, don't roam with scissors, things that are really useful and we need to know. But the problem is the superego becomes an abiding entity, uh, an abiding part of our personality and the one of the downsides of the superego for the spiritual practitioner is number one we don't need that level of negativity if if our practice is developing if it's percolating we don't need that negativity saying well you didn't you didn't get the gold you didn't get realized on this or that and you know you're you're the worst person here you're the dumbest and all this it doesn't help it's very deflating but more importantly to me is that the superego has a function of trying to make us small, trying to have us get back down to child size internally. So the problem with that is it really crowds our space. It, we, we tend to contract away from it. And we need inner spaciousness. I, I talk about it sometimes as the canvas of awakening. We really need that inner vast spaciousness to be a part of our consciousness on a regular basis for practices to mature, for realization to happen. So that's why it needs to be worked with generally. And then I found working with students that those who had had severe trauma, and I have them self-identify, I, I don't have a, 
a bar or a way to measure, but I'll ask people about early childhood trauma. And some people clearly have had significant trauma. And for them, the superego is so embedded into the personality that for the normal amount of trauma sufferer, you can be, you can be assertive with the superego. So stop, get out of here, go away. You know, there's a firmness and a directness about it. But for the, for the folks who've had severe trauma, that only feeds the superego. It gets more aggressive and more angry if they try to be assertive with it. So for those folks, what I found works is to bring more love, to bring more compassion, understanding to the superego. It seems to calm down the superego. It seems to relax more in those folks. So I saw there was a difference in terms of application on how we deal with trauma and then how we deal with the superego. And is superego the sort of thing one would pro proactively address in one's practice or in response to its, uh, sort of, if you want, coming up in, in practice? And if it's the latter, if and when it does come up, the superego, and one's confronted with it, what are the typical ways in which it presents in meditation? Uh, someone reports to you, this is how my practice is going, and you can identify, ah, yeah, here we have the superego is attempting to crowd the space, um, you know, shut things down, do its uh, su superego things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. um, how does that typically present? And uh, is it, do you address it proactively or responsibly? Well, the, the main way it presents is people will come in and to an interview, or if I'm working with them on the phone or on Zoom, and they'll start telling me all the things they're doing wrong. Um, and, and there's usually a message in their words, either expressly or implicitly, that I'm the worst meditator here. I'm the worst student. I really should just go home. Uh, I, I don't belong here. So there's really a kind of defeatist tone to them because they've accepted the superego's pronouncements. You're a lousy meditator. You don't know what you're doing. You're doing it wrong. God, everybody else here is so far along and you're just dragging. So it's this kind of thing. And, and so then it's a matter of saying, you know, if they, if they know about the superego, most of the folks that work with me regularly do. So it would, I would identify this sounds like the superego functioning and see what their response is. And then if I know them well enough, if I worked with them enough, then I'll know their, some of their history to know if they've had severe trauma or more average trauma as a child. And then suggest, you know, if you want to work with this, this would be the way to approach it. And you need you need to create kind of this safe space for yourself. And, and I also try to tell them, you know, from my perspective, the superego is wrong. Because I've had three other people come in today who to say they're the worst meditator here. So you all can't be right. And sometimes it's hysterical because you'll have somebody coming in saying that, you know, oh, I'm the worst, but this person next to me, oh my God, they're just amazing. You know, they're like, they're, I take so much comfort from them. And then that person comes in, I'm the lousiest meditator here, but that person just sits like a mountain. I get so much, you know, support from them. And it's like, I, what, I, I'm sorry, I can't have you two talk to, <laughs> to, to mirror this for each other, but, but that's how it shows up. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Another fascinating practice is the four elements practice that you, you, you teach in the book. 
uh, which is used among other things for the purpose of purifying the body. Right. And uh, perhaps I'll, I'll read from Demystifying Awakening here. A substantial portion of our self-identity is rooted in and with our body. The process of awakening to ultimate reality, to undeniable, unalterable absolute truth, involves loosening our allegiance to our body as identity. And the means uh, that, that uh, you prescribe in the book is this four elements meditation. And its outcome is very interesting. And actually, here's another one of those sections of quite condensed, almost sort of pith instruction passages. I'll read from a bit later in that section. When your concentration develops from the first level of concentration meditation, momentary concentration, aware of the meditative object in this moment, to the second level of concentration meditation, access concentration, your body will slowly begin to become clear, a crystal body. As you cycle through all of the four elements with each characteristic discernible to you, your body will become clearer and clearer. And then later on you write, and I'm jumping sections here, suddenly at the base of that crystal body, you will see a heap, a pile of something that looks like fireflies. They're blinking on and off in an inexplicable randomness that cannot be explained. I remember this practice the first time I undertook it. I had the experiences leading up to witnessing the heap of fireflies blinking on and off. I was called for an interview with my teacher, the venerable Paok Seador. The Seador smiled as I detailed what was happening. He told me the firefly heap was actually the smallest particles of the physicalness of my body. These were called kalapas in Buddhism. Essentially, what I was seeing was the subatomic particles making up the entire form of my body. The firefly entities were completely real in my perception and experience. And uh, this process, this four elements process is very interesting indeed, identifying certain qualities of each of these elements and then alternating between opposing qualities, uh, such as hot and cold or rough and smooth. Um, could you describe that practice and its function and how it is that it, um, should we say, loosens the allegiance to the body? And what all this crystal body business is about? It sounds very fascinating. Well, one of the interesting aspects of the Theravadan practices, which the four elements comes from, is there's a lot of deconstruction that goes on. And so in this case, we are identifying throughout our body all of the characteristics of each of the four elements. And the four elements are earth, water, air, and wind. Or no, uh, fire's in there. <laughs> earth, water, fire, and, uh, and wind. But anyway, um, so we end up identifying these four elements and each of their corresponding characteristics, they're called. Like you mentioned, the hard and soft, which is part of the earth element. And so we locate everything hard in our body, which would be our teeth, fingernails, and bones. And so we, but this isn't just a conceptual practice, meaning you and I can speak right now and we both agree those are hard objects in our body. Well, we have to actually make direct contact with those. With the teeth and nails, that's not hard. We can, you know, we can experience that directly. But the bones, we have to use our wisdom eye to see. We have to be able to discern the bones themselves. And this is discerning it to a level <clears throat> that if you, for example, broke your arm when you were young, in doing this practice, you would actually see the break. You would see where the break had healed, the, the line that it left behind. 
And you might see, for example, discoloration around it. It might be more yellowed. The bone could be more yellowed than other parts of the bone. So you really, you really have the experience. I'm seeing my body. I'm seeing all these uh, body parts, you know, from the four elements. And the the main impact of the deconstruction practices. There's this another practice called 32 body parts, where you go through and identify these different body parts and body functions. <clears throat> but the the impactful aspect of it is at the end when you finish you realize that you've subtracted you've 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 identified and accounted for the entirety of your body <clears throat> and there's no me we somehow had this idea there's going to be this little box this little something somewhere that we would identify okay that's me and when that's not there <clears throat> it's surprisingly impactful that we we feel like we've emptied out the suitcase and there's nothing else left and yet I have the sense of me so how come I can't find it so that's where the deconstruction of self and and where we do identify with our body as me how we look how we behave the different ways our body can do things we can dance we can do martial arts we can do all these different things and so it really helps to to pull away from that particularly if you're doing activities that practices that engage or orient towards some of the transcendent experiences, particularly involving other realms, because you have to be able, consciousness has to be able to leave this body in order to access those realms. And if you're overly identified and attached to the body, you're not going to be able to depart. And by you, I mean consciousness, awareness. Well, that's very interesting. And what about the crystal body and the and the kalapas? That, that was very impactful. I, I, at that point, was new to Theravada Buddhism. I, I'd never heard of kalapas before. And so I had this experience. And, and when the Sayadaw told me this is the progression, a lot of things he said to me, I took somewhat skeptically of like, well, okay, let's see. I, I don't know if this is real or not, or if it'll be real for me. But then when I began practicing, and, and as you mentioned, you're cycling through all of the four elements and all the characteristics, and you're doing uh, them all like three times in a minute. So you're doing it at this very rapid pace, but you have complete contact with these different parts, like the, the hard and soft. You're, you're with the bones, and then everything else in your body would be soft. It's not hard. So you're cycling between those and then all the other characteristics really rapidly and this crystal body just forms it forms out of the access concentration it's mysterious i don't know how or why it works but it does and then the instruction is we move awareness to position behind and above our body and then we look through the crystal body and that's where we see the kalapas and i was sitting on a sofa at the time and so i saw this crystal body and the and the bottom of the crystal body on the Zafu was this pile of fireflies. And I was like, I don't know what what the heck is going on. And I actually thought maybe I'm doing something wrong. And so when the Saidao called me in, and he was famous for this on the retreat, whenever one of us would have, uh, would conclude a meditation, like I did with Four Elements, there'd be a tap on my shoulder, a knock on the door, Saidao wants to see you. And so he did this repeatedly throughout the two-month retreat. He would call me in, really the minute I finished a practice and then would 
um, in my view, he would then check the practice by looking at the prior mind moment, have me, he'd have me do the practice in front of him. And then he, I think he would look and confirm it. He said he didn't, but it seemed rather remarkable that he could exactly time the interview and confirm the experience. That is remarkable. And is this the retreat in which you famously, um, uh, or famously to our listeners, certainly, uh, because we talked about this in some detail, especially in the first interview, uh, completed the jhana path. The fa famously, Pao Xedo was very rigorous, extremely high standards, and you're among the very first to uh, non-monastics to accomplish that. Is that that's that same retreat? Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're talking about pretty deep levels of concentration by the by the time you're coming to this four elements practice, I assume. Well, actually, I started with the four elements practice, so that was my first practice I did, and I did it in part because. I had been in a couple of really bad accidents, and I really had a kind of gratitude and protectiveness of my body that it hadn't hadn't died in these accidents. And so when I was going to be doing the jhana practice, I could tell that there was a, a dialing down of awareness with the body, and I wasn't comfortable with that. I, I felt like it was dishonoring my body. And, and so it was recommended I start with four elements, which really helped a lot for me to both get more comfortable with the body and also uh, loosen my allegiance in a way that I could then transcend the body itself. Awareness could transcend the body. Uh, that's very interesting. I, I wonder if this relates somewhat to the section on resistances to awakening. For example, you write, when awareness is gravitating toward absence of self, we begin to encounter our resistances to awakening or deepening self-realization. The most common resistances are anxiety, worry, fear, or terror. I understand by the time you did the jhana retreat, you had already had very profound awakening experience, so I'm not suggesting it's exactly the same, but there seems to be something similar in, in the sense of resistance. You write further, these concerns and fears are called mara in Buddhism. Mara is the personification of the forces resisting or opposing awakening or enlightenment. Mara is the group or category of resistances that arise to stall or prevent awakening. It can be helpful to simply understand and accept that each of us will have resistances. Which resistances arise will depend upon our life patterns of thought and behavior. In other words, we should each expect resistances on our spiritual path of unfolding. They will be the same resistances we utilize and rely upon when meeting challenging interactions in our life. You know, uh, I wonder, we were talking earlier about if it's possible to languish uh, in Kensho, having had a glimpse and not going further into Satori uh, or, or deeper, deeper levels of, of uh, awakening. I wonder if uh, subtle, almost invisible resistances might be part of a force that could hold someone back in that instance, or perhaps even from reaching uh, Kensho. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. And um, do you think these same resistances apply uh, in a situation like you were describing, a reluctance to enter the jhanas in a very deep way? Yeah, I, I think the resistances could be applied to any meditation where there is an experiential possibility. So I think that's true for the jhanas, it would be true for four elements and true for awakening. 
And a lot of it is we all have a lot of these resistances, but it seems to me that a lot of the tension we have with them is that they have helped us. Sometimes they were helpful to us. And so we start to equate a benefit from them. And also they can be tied in and linked to our survival instincts. So there's something about, I, I don't wanna put these down because this is what's kept me alive throughout my lifetime when I've had, you know, been in accidents or almost been harmed. So, so there's a kind of allegiance to it. And also we've invested identity in them. This is who I am. I'm somebody who worries. I'm someone who is anxious. I'm someone who is fearful. And again, once we're identifying with it, it's hard to work with, harder to work with. So we have to loosen that, that identity and loosen the allegiance we have. And that's where we do this in baby steps. And that's where really the Buddha's heart, the Brahma Viharas help. We can loosen a lot of those with the heart practices. And we, we're doing it in a way where we're steeping in qualities of true nature, heart qualities of true nature. And, and also we're seeing that we, we can function and make contact with these heart qualities. And we don't need to have fear. We don't need to have anxiety. Everything's fine. We're being held. Everything's unfolding in a safe way. So I really emphasize to my students that it's important to build trust based upon what you experientially know, what you directly know, that's yours now. You don't need to believe me or a book about it. You know it's true. And if you keep building that way, we're really building the sort of the trust muscle, let's say, to where we can then appropriately challenge and say, yes, okay, fear's coming up and I get why it is because I'm entering or there's new, a new reality that's nearby. But also I've had 10 steps I've taken and all of them have been safe. So it gives me confidence that the next step may be safe too. Let's say someone was to come to you and let's say that person's name was Steve. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a random hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. I know this guy, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in this instance, and he, he was to say something like, I noticed in myself, for example, something, maybe this would serve as a good example, uh, particularly in practices uh, of sleep, practices of maintaining, uh, we could say awareness or uh, something like that, going to sleep. Um, the consciousness or the, um, I'm afraid my vocabulary is not going to track especially well here, but one moves towards sleep and there's a sort of gradual uh, moving in that direction. And then there's a shelf, like a sea shelf that drops into, I suppose, perhaps a disconnection from the external senses or something like this into a deeper uh, state. Mm -hmm. This sort of um, drop or sea shelf, I think, can also be encountered in certain uh, meditative practices as well. A certain kind of uh, level of depth or a level of breadth and openness, mm -hmm. which are different dimensions, I think, but have a, the same kind of uh, letting go. And uh, something I've noticed in those situations was, and this is why um, I'm recalling a period of an attempt at working with 
sleep and dream practices, which was rather unsuccessful. Well, sort of fun and interesting, but here was here was the limit. Was this um, wall of what I thought was fear. Mm -hmm. But when I penetrated slightly more deeply and reflected more on it, it was in fact a will to live, a fierce aggression, a kind of um, uh, an aggression filled with vitality and boldness and uh, defiance at. Mm -hmm. And I, I linked it to a previous time in my life where I came very close to death and had a so actually some very strange ex experiences which are not so relevant now. But one of the interesting things that occurred when the system rebooted, because there was a moment of the system uh, turning off and so on, and there was an experience, the first thing to arise was the sense of a body. And followed by that shortly, a fierce will to live in the body. It was going to continue to attempt to live until it died. Whether it lived or died wasn't really, uh, didn't seem to have much didn't seem to have as much, um, didn't seem to have much uh, consequence. The point was, it's the nature of the body to live until it no longer lives. That was the feeling of the will to live. And then, then the mind or the personality came. And then also that's infused with that same or had a quality of um, would continue to go until it couldn't. Mm -hmm. So there's this interesting will to live coming from, it seems, almost the body itself or something deep inside um, not identified with but nonetheless extremely arresting um, and a block and in a way it feels a bit like a betrayal and this is uh, something perhaps similar to what you were describing with the accident a betrayal to uh, simply move beyond it or simply ignore it it seems like um, that's too big a step it's a betrayal that, um, yeah, it feels like a betrayal. I, I wonder if you understand what I mean. Uh, this seems to be uh, a little bit like these resistances here. What would you say to, to somebody whose perhaps name was Steve, <laughs> who ex who experienced that and, and felt perhaps it might be uh, an interesting block to certain, to certain, um, uh, to certain uh, yeah, a block in practice, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think we're we're talking about the same thing. That's that's was really my perspective when I before I did the four elements was I felt it was a betrayal to orient towards um, jhana states, towards transcendent states, and kind of abandon the body. So so I, I definitely understand that, and and I think you're touching into what we might call the survival instinct that there's that fierceness, almost animal-like fierceness that I'm gonna stay alive, I'm gonna do what it takes, period. And, and so I think there's something useful about that, but I think we need to, I would suggest also working to unpack what comes with that. So trying to distill down to the core of that, which is I need to stay alive. And, and then really looking at you know, the aggression, uh, the energy, and really being with that. And again, letting tapping off some of that energy because the, the aggression isn't too helpful. Assertiveness is very helpful, but the aggression, there's a little bit of rage in it. And so that's not terribly helpful for meditation practice. But if you can parse those out and see what the rage piece is, 
versus what the assertiveness is, then there can be some balancing, some digestion of that, understanding more and more. And and the main thing is, you know, for most people, they have a they conceptualize moving into new territory, whether it's the dream work or meditation, but they'll often conceptualize it like moving to the edge of a cliff. Like you mentioned, the drop-off in the ocean, which I see as the same thing. And what I tell people when they're in that place is you want to go as close to the edge of the cliff as you can to be a little bit uncomfortable. You don't want to trigger your survival instincts. You don't want to trigger fear, uh, because if you get into panic, that's not helping anything. But but being a little uncomfortable is really helpful. And over time, we get close, and that seems to to tap off some of that energy. I talk about it sometimes with students that it's like we have a memory or we have a part of ourselves that we don't want to go to and it becomes sort of sacred or protected or hidden and then we put this electrified fence around it so when we get close to it we feel the energy of the fence and we're like oh oh, oh nope let's get out of here and so the skillfulness is we have to learn just like the cliff to come close to that fence enough to feel the energy but not to be overwhelmed and then we just hang out there we're not doing anything we're just practicing and eventually the level of energy we're in dials down we we digest it or tap off whatever the languaging is so then we take one step closer and we continue until at some point the fence loses its power and then we can enter in and we can see what's actually inside the fence and typically for the majority of people whatever's in the fence is way less of a dramatic experience than they expected. They thought it was going to be this horrific, horrendous, you know, life-altering kind of gut-wrenching experience, and it's usually not. It's something that happened when we were young, and we tucked away there because we couldn't handle it. But as an adult, and particularly an adult who's orienting towards spiritual practice and other dimensions, we can we can work with it almost always. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to say something to put in there uh, now, which is, um, and at that time, uh, when I was very close to death, I had to fight very hard not to die, actually, and okay. and had a very visceral and clear experience of um, this will to live, actually, very clear. I can still taste it now, actually, uh, that feeling. I think I'll include that as well, because that's Great. the part I missed. Uh, in, yeah. And that's, that's important, cool. actually. That's important that there, because that tells us part of the story for you is that you actually physically had to fight to stay alive. So you had to muster every ounce of strength. And of course, turning towards aggression and fear are going to be some of the strongest energetic emotions we have. So, you know, that's what you were probably tapping into to, to stay alive. Yeah. And, you know, it's while we're on the subject, as I taste it now, it does feel fantastic. There's something about the uh, concentration of all one's resources into a singular um, defiance. Yeah, that is um, that feels exhilarating. Actually, it has woven in there, perhaps rather subtly, love. There is. Mm -hmm love like a suit which has got some maybe golden or silver thread 
uh, woven into it so you can catch it at certain lights. It has that in there. There's something tremendously, uh, dare I say, liberating about that profound concentration of all one's resources and energies into that simple act of defiance. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I would say when this is up, I, I would really be interested to have you uh, really ho hone into the love, R really make contact, sit with it, explore it, let it let it unfold more, because that that's really the key there. The, the aliveness, I mean, this is why the extreme sports are so popular and people do things like drive fast and, you know, parachute out of planes and things, because that aliveness, that's the present, they're really present, they're not conceptual at all, it's direct experience right now, and that's really what, in a lot of ways, we're searching for, and that's, I think, also what's the potentiality in meditation. Very interesting. Perhaps we could pivot now. Thank you very much, Stephen, for uh, giving me a uh, private session uh, in the middle of the interview. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, uh, that, I'm going to try that. Yeah, certainly. I can, I can taste that actually. And uh, you've, you've really, um, that's very helpful pointing. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I'd love to hear about it too. If you want to later, let me know how it goes. Yes. Well, I hope to interview you about your uh, upcoming uh, book, which is, <laughs> I know in the works. So perhaps we'll, uh, we'll have, we'll have we'll more have sessions. Se se sessions with Snyder. Uh, we could do a little, uh, excerpt okay another i think fascinating part of the book and um i'm not sure how are you doing for time i'd like to talk a bit about zen versus theravada maybe sure. maybe that's where we'd end it what do you think i i've got as much time as you want today okay great you're you're it for today oh excellent well let me just close my uh side hatch here can you hear the storm no it's fierce you're on a houseboat too aren't you yeah I am, yeah. It's probably going to feel it more acutely than if you were in a snuggled in a building somewhere. Oh yeah, it's the boat's going, going like right, right now. The wind's died for a moment, but it's it's doing that. It's quite actually interesting to meditate on water. For that reason, the the way in which one experiences posture and particularly the pelvic ball, mm -hmm. uh, subtle movements, I think is quite uh, quite interesting on a, on a houseboat, especially on a day like today. Okay, so perhaps we could pivot now to your discussion of Zen and Theravada. In particular, I think there's something that's very interesting. You discussed the differing aims of Zen and Theravada, and perhaps that's something um, we could touch on. But I think perhaps even more fascinating is your comparison of the maps of those two traditions, or the stages of awakening. Now you write, the focus of much of the Zen tradition is awakening itself, and its map of awakening has a directness and simplicity in its presentation. The Zen map tracks more closely my direct experiences and my students, yet the Theravada map of awakening is the original map of Buddhism and awakening. For this reason, it's helpful to understand how it lays out the stages. You go on to write a little later, in modern Buddhist practice, I'm aware of several Theravada Buddhist teachers who became stream enterers by way of a Zen-type first awakening experience, rather than experiencing merging into cessation, as is the standard first awakening within the Theravada model. Having experienced both, I consider Kensho to be equivalent to stream entry. Both see the truth of identity, that our normal personality viewpoint is a conditioned identity, even though self-identity is not ended. 
both the Zen practitioner and Theravada practitioner, who have one of these experiences, have seen through the fakeness of their personality perspective, yet there has not been sufficient cultivation and investigation of self-identity convictions to uproot the self-identity. And then you lay uh, side by side the three stages map of Zen, Kensho, Satori, and Daigo Tete. And you compare that with the four stage model of Theravada, stream enterer, once returner, never returner, and Arhat. So I'm wondering if you could perhaps discuss those interactions, the interactions of the maps, if you could perhaps lay them side by side and uh, reflect on the interactions. There are some differences, there are some similarities, and I think some interesting interactions. And I wonder what benefits you as a practitioner have gained from the interactions of these maps. Yeah, well, let's let's see where we end up <laughs> with this. Yeah, I, I think the... I really wanted to include the Theravadan model because it is the core, it is the base of the Buddhist or Buddhism. This is what the Buddha started with. And I think it's also worth holding the possibility that the Buddha was probably an aversive type, meaning he was one of those who wanted to move things that were considered negative away from him in order to have the good stuff close by or nearby. So I think the view is of the temporal world, of the conditioned world, that there's a kind of rejection of it. And so there's an orientation, like in the Theravadan model, uh, my teacher, I can't tell you how many times he invited me to move to Myanmar and ordain. And because that's the highest life form according to the Theravadan, the traditional Theravadans. And yet so many of us are lay people in the world now, particularly in the West, we don't have a lot of models of monastic life. So most of us who practice are living regular lives. So it's a different orientation. We don't have the rejecting of the conditioned world. We abide in the conditioned world. So that's where that model hasn't really updated as fully as it should, in my view. But in the, in the, the actual awakenings, I, I would sort of add a little footnote to what you read to say that, that the Kensho would need to be a more sustained Kensho. It doesn't necessarily need to be to the Satori level, although that absolutely would be a stream entry in my book, in my view. But if someone had a five-second Kensho experience, they saw true nature for the first time, I wouldn't consider that to be a stream enterer because they haven't yet entered the stream. They've seen the stream. So it would be a little more sustained. So I wasn't quite as clear in my writing as I could have been. But I think in the model of the Zen, it's, it's a lot clearer in the sense that you've got the initial contact with true nature. Then there's the actual uh, Satori experience where the foundation changes to true nature. So we really are entering the stream at that point. We're no longer uh, an, an average human. We now, in Theravada Buddhism, they, they say then somebody becomes of the noble lineage. And that's what that means. You're, you're then part of true nature lineage rather than the human lineage that you started with. And so I think there's benefits to it. The other aspect, too, is predominantly in the Theravadan model, folks are practicing Vipassana when um, they approach cessation in the absolute realm. And typically that's done through the practice of impermanence. 
where through concentration meditation and the Zen model is approaching it through no self or absence of self, as I call it. So it's a different orientation. So entering cessation from the concentration side, it's more like being an astronaut in a pod that gets propelled out into space rather than for the Vipassana practitioner, the majority of people I've talked with have had the experience where because they're focusing on the arising and passing away of phenomenon, and when that's stable, then they focus on the passing away portion that ends up opening to cessation or can, but normally that happens in a kind of melting their perception of reality that they're in, say the room I'm in begins to dissolve. So it's melting in front of me. And it's very unsettling to a majority of people when that happens. Some people get really frightened and scared about it. And it can last for a while. So it can be very destabilizing in that way. But the teachers work with it. I don't I don't work with that particular practice. Uh, but the entry that I'm talking about through either the jhanas or through concentration meditation uh, really is it's a lot cleaner because we're going into the absence of self and and that becomes more and more comfortable and so it it makes the both the awakening experiences and then the integration the embodiment I think a lot easier to work with because it's not as destabilizing as the melting phenomena that can happen for folks using impermanence as their way in to cessation. Well, that's very interesting. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that using the, the no self path, acclimatization. In fact, you use that word acclimatization to, to talk about how one approaches that. And there can be periods of a sense of being unable to locate the self or at least confusion about who one is, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. sort of warming up to a more abiding in that place or so the 51 percent uh, perhaps or something like this mm -hmm. um could you talk a little about that aspect i think that's very interesting yeah the absence of self it it can occur more readily on retreat because we're meditating we're quieting down we're getting more spacious in our inner experience and we're moving away from the functions of our normal life, our, our off-retreat life. So, you know, we're, we're away from friends and family, we're away from our routines and all that. So it does quiet things down in that regard. And with all the concentration meditations, we can get deep enough with them that we really can start shifting more into awareness and consciousness as opposed to our identity. And for some reason, I don't know, understand how it works mechanically, but there are times when we get deep enough into that, that our normal sense of self is suspended. It's just not present. And so if I were to, to ask that question I mentioned earlier, who am I? And I turn within, there's no answer. There's nothing there that I can get a hold of, that I can identify. There's nothing of the familiar way the historic way that I identify, there's really like a question mark. And, and that can be very destabilizing for a while. And for most people, when it first happens, like the Ken show, uh, it's very brief, but people go to 
the habitual behavior and the habitual mind states to familiarize themselves and land once again in the personality. Um, and we do that primarily through doing, through the compulsive doing. We start doing things and the doing is a normal way of identifying our sense of self. And so we reify, we, we confirm, oh yeah, here I am. Okay, everything's fine. Because there's a certain fear that gets activated or can be activated by the loss of the sense of self. There's a fear of madness. There's a fear we won't be able to function in our life. We won't be able to have meaningful relationships. We won't be able to sustain a, a work or a job or income. So people regularly will tell me when this fear is up for them that their fear is they're going to end up homeless and alone. And could you talk a little about the acclimatization? Let's say one, someone is facing this dynamic. They find themselves busying about things, mm -hmm. doing self-sonar. Sometimes I think of it like yeah. self-sonar, yeah. you know, because one's sort of echolocating by yeah. interaction, interactivity with one's environment or whatever it is, activity and so on. Um, I must be here because that's over there, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, if one's fa facing that, uh, you give some interesting advice, including permitting, actually, a bit of that activity, that's busyness. Uh, could you t talk a little bit about how one might progress through uh, that sort of territory? Right. Yeah, and I like your term, the, the self-sonar. I talk about it as sonar sometimes also, because it is that we're looking for that reflection back, the mirroring of who we are. And the main thing I talk about with people when they're in the absence of self-experience is uh, first, I try to identify it for them that this sounds like what you're experiencing. And so that they may have read about it or heard me talk about it. So they, they at least know then, okay, here, here I'm on a map. And I tell them, really try to be as comfortable as you can, not knowing who you are. Try to just leave the question open without looking for or finding an answer. And for if people are sort of stable in the absence of self-experience, they can usually stay with that. They can recognize, I have these ways that I identify me. I have these certain behaviors, ways of speaking, things I do, which confirm for me who I am. So I try to have them minimize those activities as much as possible to stay in that absence. And at some point, if awakening doesn't occur, then the self will reassert itself, not necessarily the same as before, it may have changed some from this absence of self experience. But again, it's like anything else, it's like approaching that cliff we talked about earlier, that you want to do it in comfortable steps, you want to be a little bit uncomfortable. So you're trying to stay with the discomfort of not knowing who you are. And again, realizing nothing bad is happening. I'm not going insane. I'm still able to function. I'm still able to relate to people. So there's still something happening. So some of my fears aren't manifesting. So that gives a little more confidence to where when it when it happens more and more, and that was my experience, was it happened in short bursts. And then at some point I began having sustained experiences of weeks or months where there was an absence of self. And I found I could function and do, I could work and have relationships and do all those things, but I had no idea who I was. Where does Koan fit into this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Well, I, I don't teach koans. I'm not authorized to teach koans. I've practiced koans, uh, koan practice. I think it's a, another really marvelous innovation of the Zen tradition. And the, the koan, for those that don't know, is a kind of spiritual perplexing problem or presentation. And it can't be solved by concept, logic, uh, thinking in any way. We have to move into the intuitive qualities uh, within, and we have to also, there normally is an absence of self at the time the koan will be resolved. Typically, first koans are intended to be ones that evoke a significant kensho. And Zen teachers, typically, if someone has a small kensho, meaning they have a that flash experience I mentioned earlier, the teacher will uh, have them continue with the koan. So they won't, even though they've they've seen into their true nature, it's not significant enough experience. It didn't, it didn't really land. It wasn't big enough to really make a shift. So they have them continue with the koan until it happens, till it's a big enough experience that they, you know, life has changed in a, a marked way. And then once that those little koans, like just for an example, one of those koans of the initial level is what's the sound of, of one hand clapping? You know, we know two hands, but what's this sound? And there is no answer for that. You can't come up with an answer. Logically, uh, you have to get into that space where the sense of self is absent and the intuition, the intuitive understanding of the unconditioned kicks in. And then we know the answer. We know what it is. And the Zen teachers I've worked with have uh, require you to show. So if you have a re resolution to the koan, you don't just tell them what it is, you've got to demonstrate it. And that's a whole nother level when you have to essentially perform the re resolution to the koan in some fashion, rather than just say, oh, I'm, I'm empty, I'm nothing, I'm not here, whatever the, the languaging would be. So, so it's, a great, it's a great model, um, it, but it seems to be that it's, it has certain people it attracts and other people aren't, aren't attracted to that practice. So that's why to me, it's, it's a great practice to engage in and um, take up if you're pulled that way. But I really wanted to present practices that one didn't have to necessarily follow the koan path and could have the same access to realization and embodiment as the koan path. And, and I'm not saying what I'm teaching is equivalent to somebody doing 20 years in a koan path. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying first awakenings or initial awakenings, that's possible using other practices. Very interesting. Perhaps uh, two, two more questions. One a bit of a curveball and, and then something about integration. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you, just something you said there about somebody who's had 20 years of on the Koan path, for example. You know, one thing that I don't recall you mentioning in the book, but I could be wrong, is, and I wonder if you, if you believe this is the case, the outcome or flavor of somebody who's steeped in, say, Zen versus Theravada training, for example. We, you, you write in the book about the different orientation in terms of... Uh, 
goals, and there are of course certain doctrinal differences, which you know, not insignificant. Um, and also we've discussed the maps and the different uh, map differences, and you actually go into quite a bit of detail, you know, going through the, the stages and defining them. You, do, you define um, the four stages of the Theravada path and so on. It's very interesting indeed. Do you think that a Zen person, advanced uh, Zen person, has a certain flavor? Is there something that they share in the same way that before you were saying that you could sometimes if someone's had a first awakening, there's a kind of resonance, there's a musical note you can tap into is does Zen have a kind of almost I suppose, genre of uh, expression versus the Theravada genre of expression? Or do you think it's more rooted in the individual practitioner? Um, and, and their perhaps personality or proclivities coming into it? What can we expect at the dusty end of the path? You know, in <laughs> guitar playing, do you know what I mean by this? In guitar playing, we, we have the dusty end of the fretboard, which is at the top where you don't go very often. So right. this sort of dusty end of the path. What, what can we expect uh, if we're uh, in these different paths at that end of it? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think that every tradition and even every school within a tradition has its own particular flavor. And so people practicing in that lineage, in that tradition, will have some of that flavor as part of them, their, who, who they are in, in a real fundamental way. But the one thing I don't talk about in the book, which is true, is when you, when you move into the, I hate to say more advanced realizations, but let's just say the, the ones that are uh, on the dusty end of the fretboard, um, one of the things that happens is we have to also awaken out of our tradition because fundamentally all the traditions, when, we, when we're when we accessing in uh, cessation, which virtually all of Buddhism has as a hallmark of realization, uh, when we're entering into cessation, uh, everything gets absorbed into cessation, into the pure love, and then eventually into the profound absence. And as a practitioner, really to be a free, uh, let's go back to the guitar, to be a, a accomplished guitarist, you need to be able to play without looking. And also you have to, at some point, transcend music and transcend guitar. And then you're an accomplished player. And it's the same with spirituality we have to awaken out of our traditions and out of every mark of identity that we have to truly be liberated. And there's no end to the liberation. So to me, there's, that's one of the beauties is there's no finish line. There's constantly more realization that's available and there's more personal material arising out of our subconscious that's going to be kicked up as we go deeper and deeper because whatever's not resonant with that realization gets highlighted after the realization and that's the the work that has to happen we have to work on the personal material to digest and liberate that and that opens us up to greater realization i call it the stair step method um, it just seems to be the way it works for virtually everyone that i've seen oh yeah beautifully said well that i think leads us nicely to what I think will have to be my last question. Thank you for uh, being so generous with your time. And uh, that's to do with this integration and 
dealing with uh, behaviors, attitudes, etc., that are not resonant with one's recent awakening. Quite an interesting approach you have to this. And one of the aspects of that is the spiritual journal. And you mentioned that before. You write, to have a first awakening experience is life-altering. Your enduring and closely held views of self and reality become temporarily transparent and are penetrated and perceived as transitory. This perception through our customary self-identity allows us to see clearly the true nature embedded in our consciousness. Our true nature is like a spiritual hologram. When we shine the light of awareness on this particular hologram of knowing, our entire true nature or specific parts of true nature can be highlighted. This transcendent experience is magnificent, yet it's not enough to affect lasting complete change in your life. You are not ready to fully live from the first awakening experience. In order to begin to live from the changes of first awakening, you will need to integrate and embody the new realization, the new view from an activated, functioning no-self. One of the most useful approaches to integrate your realization is to observe and monitor your behavior. It's the honest self-examination of whether you're walking your talk. I have used and recommended to students a spiritual journal to record daily occurrences of incongruence. So I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of the spiritual journal um, and explain how to go about using it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I have students keep a spiritual journal both to record anything significant in their meditation that occurs, or even if they notice certain times of day are better or something about the meditation. So it's just kind of an ongoing self-examination, self-reflection. But principally, it's used for seeing behavior that's incongruent. Like, like I, I have this inside understanding. I have this knowing that's within. And I see myself behave in a way that isn't congruent with that. It isn't harmonious with that. So in other words, I'm at a store and some clerk is a little bit gruff with me and I yell at them. And so that night I'm, I'm reflecting on my day and I say to myself, you know, that was really, uh, really a much stronger reaction than was necessary for the situation. I way overreacted to that. And so then I write down the situation of what happened and I try to just touch into what got triggered. Well, there was some sense for me that I wasn't being seen. They weren't paying attention to me and I felt uh, invisible. So I felt like I had to assert myself so they could see me. And so this is, and then that later when I'm in the space to investigate, then I would try to backtrack finding out what my history is with feeling invisible or unseen and going to the earliest memories I can of what it was like and what I did in terms of um, response. And then ideally, if you can get back to one of the core memories and you can tell when you hit these memories because they have a kind of glow to them or a kind of extra energy when they're a pivotal memory. And then I have people replay the memory or I do this myself, replay the memory as it actually happened. So I start the dysfunctional behavior as usually as a child. And then once I go through that, then I go through the same scenario, but I put today's mind into that child's body. And I have the people say their lines, and then I respond the way ideally I would like to respond, or I feel is my highest 
response. And I let that play out and I see the difference. And then I advance forward memory in my memory chain to the next highlighted memory. I don't go to every memory of not being seen, but I go to the ones that were pivotal. And again, replay it and then put in today's perspective on it. And, it, and this is a way that we actually are converting some of our personal negative karma. We're, we're bringing it back around. And when we release some of our negative karma, we're also releasing the places, the relationship of those memories and those behaviors to identity, because it's part of our identity. I don't want to be unseen. I don't want to be overlooked. I'm going to assert myself when I feel like you're not seeing me. And so all of a sudden that's changing where now it's, well, sometimes if someone doesn't see me, I don't really care. Sometimes I still do care and sometimes I don't. So I've changed my identity already too. So by doing this, we're really affecting uh, our karma and we're also influencing positively our identity, our self-identity. That's very cool indeed. How did you develop that? I just, I started doing it myself uh, many, many years ago when my kids were young. And if I would meditate twice a day, once before they got up and once after they were asleep. And in my evening meditation, I began just keeping a, a journal of the day. And I began writing down um, times when I overreacted with my kids. And I, and because I, I wasn't particularly pleased with how I was parented, I wanted to parent differently. And so the only way I could see to not parent out of habit the way my parents did was I had to really watch my behavior. And then I would analyze it each night. I'd go through this process. And often when I had an overreaction, I would be able to realize I had taken in a piece of my mother or a piece of my father or someone else. And I had taken that in as that's how you behave when somebody does this behavior, when they drop food on the floor. Uh, it's a strong reaction. And anyway, so that was how I started with it. And then I began just tracking it relative to retreats and realization that I could see I would do some behavior and I'd be like, wow, that that was like watching somebody else. I mean, that was not not how I want to behave and not who I take myself to be right now. So that's where it began evolving. And then I just found it works with students too. They're they're finding it useful and and you know, and I and I say one one thing, Steve, too, is we can really tell our level of realization really by how we behave in our relationships. It's one of the great tests to see. And it doesn't mean that you have a perfect relationship with everybody if you're uh, awake, but it means you bring your full self to it. And even if you have a bad relationship or one that doesn't work well, say you have family relationships that aren't that functional in some ways, it's understanding there's, it's a complex dynamic. I'm not going to be this, this Buddha moving through all of life and having no problems and everybody being enlightened around me. It's, it just doesn't work like that in, in reality. So we have to also have a certain amount of compassion for ourselves that I'm not, I'm not striving for perfection. I'm not going to be a perfect person. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to walk, I'm trying to walk my talk. I'm trying to live from the realization that's here in this consciousness. Fascinating, yeah. I think this is a great place to to end. We could go, I could 
uh, go on and on uh, questioning <laughs> you, Stephen, but uh, I think we'll have to bring it to an end. Yeah, fan- fantastic. Demystifying Awakening, out now, hot off the press. Stephen Snyder, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Steve. Nice being with you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.